Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. And this morning as we have the opportunity to look at the Word of God, we're currently have been looking at 1 Peter 5, 1, which says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder in witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. And as we've been looking at what Peter says here in verse 1, we have been introduced to the subject of elders and church leadership. And we've been looking at the big picture from Scripture about this office in the church that's identified by the terms of elder, pastor, overseer, shepherd, all these terms are used interchangeably for this one office in the church, which we normally identify as pastor. And I don't know if you know this, but Scripture only identifies two offices in the church, and that is overseer, or pastor, elder, and deacons. That's Philippians 1.1. Overseers feed the flock, deacons serve the flock. And all pastors are elders, all pastors are overseers, all pastors are shepherds, and that's what we've been looking at. And we've been seeing that for the past three weeks, and we're looking at it again today. And in our last time together, we were looking at verses 2 and 3 of 1 Timothy 3, as we've been answering a question, how are elders qualified? So just take your finger and... Hold it in 1 Peter 5 and just flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And as I said, we've already looked at the first three verses. And we're looking at verses 4 through 7 now because verses 1 through 7 is dealing with the office of overseer, the office of elder pastor. Verses 8 through 13 deal with the office of deacon. But Right now, we're just looking at the office of elder, since Peter has mentioned that. Let me just take a moment and read what we have here in 1 Peter, or 1 Timothy, rather, chapter 3. It says, It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil." And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, if you hold your place there, you can remove your finger from 1 Peter 5. Or I'll have all your fingers spread out right in the New Testament. And go over to Titus 1, but do hold your place in 1 Timothy 3. Because in Titus 1, verses 6 through 9, we find the qualifications again. Some are overlapping 1 Timothy chapter 3, but there are also a few others that are mentioned here. So when you take both 
sections together, you end up with about 26 qualifications. I want to begin at verse 5. He says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe or are faithful, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teachings so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So again, 26 qualifications for the overseer, pastor, elder, shepherd. Again, this is one office. And as we pointed out the last couple times, when you compare this to the office of deacon, they have qualifications as well in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. And the major difference between the office of deacon and the office of elder in the qualifications is really in one area, and it's the area of teaching. Elders are required to have skill in teaching. They are to be teachable as well as taught, skilled, trained in the teaching of the Word of God so that they might train others in the Word. And as far as deacons, they're not told to be skilled in teaching, but they are told to be holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They need to know what they believe. They need to know how to defend what they believe and to be able to share that with others. Now, I don't know if you've heard that after 100 years, the perfect pastor has been found. He's the church elder who will please everyone. He preaches exactly 20 minutes and then sits down. He condemns sin but never steps on anybody's toes. He works from 8 in the morning to 10 at night, doing everything from preaching sermons to sweeping. He makes $400 per week, gives $100 a week to the church, drives a late model car, buys lots of books, wears fine clothes, and has a nice family. He always stands ready to contribute to every other good cause, too, and to help panhandlers who drop by the church on their way to somewhere. He's 36 years old and has been preaching for 40 years. He's tall, on the short side, heavy set in a thin sort of way, and handsome. He has eyes of blue or brown to fit the occasion, <laughs> and wears his hair parted in the middle, left side, dark and straight, right side, brown and wavy. <laughs> He has a burning desire to work with the youth and spends all of his time with the senior citizens. He smiles all the time while keeping a straight face because he has a keen sense of humor that finds him seriously dedicated. He makes 15 calls a day on church members, spends all of his time evangelizing non-members, and is always found in his study if he is needed. Unfortunately, he burned himself out and died at the age of 32. You know, that's humorous, and it's meant to be, but there is some sarcasm and some truth there, because in some places, that's how pastors are treated. But as we've been looking at this, we're getting the biblical view, the biblical understanding 
of elders. And as I said, we have already answered the question, what is an elder and what do they do? And now we're looking at what qualifies them. And if you go to chapter 3 and verse 1 of 1 Timothy, we saw several things that qualified them. Uh, First, the Holy Spirit is the one who calls elders into that office. Acts 20, 28 says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. That's the first thing. The Holy Spirit is the one who decides who has this gift or who has been given to the church by Christ Himself according to Ephesians 4 and who has also been given the gift of teaching by the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, 11. And now as we come to 1 Timothy 3.1, we see that there are some other things. And one of those things is, is that he must have a desire for the office. It says it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires or desires or more specifically reaches forth toward the office of overseer. It is a fine work which he has a passion to do. All those who are truly called by the Spirit of God to be in this office reach for the office and they have a passion for the office. But you know, that's not enough. Because what happens now is you get into the qualifications and we need to see if this person, this man, has truly been called to this ministry. And we've also pointed out that They certainly have to be men. Ephesians 4.8 talks about Christ giving gifts to men. And then it tells us in verse 11 of chapter 4 of Ephesians that these men were apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. We also know from 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2, it says here that he is to be the husband of one wife. Or more literally, a one-woman man. And I think the Holy Spirit gives us those terms because look at what's going on in the culture where you have homosexuality and lesbianism and and you have two women that are married and they call each other their wife or you have two men that are married and they call each other their husband and here we find that the word for man is used a one woman man. You know, I find it very interesting that the White House, as well as many of our politicians, are refusing to find to define what a woman is. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Now they're calling them the birthing parent. That's how they want to define it. And now they're even saying that men can have babies. That's really off the wall right there, right? Men cannot have babies, nor would I want to have a baby. Uh, This is the part where we men wimp out and we go, Go, honey, go! (laughs) You know, super wife, super woman, super mom, to be able to go through that. And every woman has usually the same response as they're going through it. We're not getting pregnant again, but once the baby's born, even Jesus says that they forget about the pain and they desire to have more children. But we see here that an elder, overseer, pastor, shepherd is a one-woman man. And even Titus 1.6 that we just read a moment ago, it says, if any man. So this role here, this office is only reserved for men, not women. 
And if you want to define a man and a woman, let's do it this way. Male and female. There we go. But they don't even want to do that today either. I found out just yesterday that one of the universities honored a, a trans athlete who is a man but perceives himself as a woman and so they have dubbed him woman of the year. And we're seeing more trans men trying to get involved in women's sports. And guess who's winning in those women's sports? The trans men. Because why? They're men. And they want to have trans bathrooms and allow men and women to use the same bathroom. And we have some of your local stores even here that have bought into that, like Target was one. And I tell you, and we still practice this today, our kids don't go to the bathroom by themselves when we're out in the public. I do not trust the public. And with this kind of stuff going on, do you? They can even define what they are. It's whatever you feel you are today. And as we read some time ago, that there is a list as long as your arm on the different genders that they've come up with. Well, God has an answer to all that, and He's only come up with two, male and female. Man and woman. And that's the only two that he is honored in marriage. If you've got a man and a man or a woman and a woman, that is not a recognizable marriage by Scripture. It doesn't matter if the government recognizes that. Scripture does not recognize it. The only marriage that Scripture recognizes is between a man and a woman. I never thought that I would have to say that today in our day and age, but here we are. Now, as I said, there were 26 qualifications. And we have already looked at 11 of them, which are, above reproach, the husband of one wife or one woman man, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, apt to teach, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, gentle, peaceable, and not quarrelsome. And now we find ourselves looking at the next one. And what does he tell us here? It's the end of verse 3 that he is to be free from the love of money. Free from the love of money or not covetous. That long phrase right there is one word in the Greek. It comes from two words though, two compound words, phileo, which means to be fond of, and agouros, which means silver. And so when you put them together, it means not fond of silver or not loving money. It speaks of someone who does not love money. You don't want a pastor, elder, shepherd, overseer, whichever term you choose to use, as a lover of money. That could be dangerous in so many ways. And... Let me just give you a couple ways in which it's dangerous. Number one, love of money can corrupt a man's ministry. And the reason why it can corrupt a man's ministry is because it tempts him to view people as a means by which he can get more money. So he says we need more people because we need more money. Or I need more money, he would say. Folks, the only reason why we need more people... The only reason why we need more people is we want to see God save people, right? Amen. We want to see God transform 
people. That's why we need more people. And as you and I evangelize and reach people for Christ, that's what we want to see. We want to see them yield their life to Christ. Amen. That's what we're after. We're not after using people. The desire for money must never be a ruling motive of the pastor's life. One writer says this, money-loving materialistic elders set the wrong example and will inevitably fall into unethical financial dealings that disgrace the Lord's name. Now, even though he is not to be a lover of money, he should be able to be trusted with money, but I wouldn't trust someone who is a lover of money, would you? And if he is a lover of money, most likely his bank account is empty because he's always spending, and he's always saying that he has need of more, and he confuses his needs and his wants. But love of money can certainly corrupt a man's ministry. It can put him out of the ministry. And a second thing we would say, and this would apply to all of us, that all Christians must avoid the love of money. It's not just the pastor elder that needs to avoid it, but every believer needs to avoid it as well because it's not good. And by the way, as we go through these qualifications, and I think I said this last time, that we need to understand that this is not just the man of God who is qualified to be this. This is what we're all to be. So this is a model. This is an example that he is setting before everyone else. It's not just him who is to maintain these type of qualifications. This is every believer. But all Christians, all believers, must avoid this. Let me give you some verses that go along with this. Hebrews 13 and verse 5 says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Because the Lord is with you, the Lord is your shepherd. You shall not be in want. He provides for you. We're told in Matthew 6.33 to seek first the kingdom of God and all these things should be added unto you. And that these things in Matthew 6 was referring to your basic necessities. And God has also provided means for us to have our basic necessities met. And one of those means is what? Work. Work. He even says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 that if a man is not willing to work, he shouldn't be allowed to eat. Just sitting around and being a busybody, being lazy when you can work... And that's what we're after here. Another verse I'd give is 1 Timothy 6.10, which says, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of, e of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. See the danger there? And again, that's for everybody, not just the pastor-elder. Because money is the root of all sorts of evil, it can lead many astray, not just those in leadership. And so we have to avoid the love of money, and elders have to avoid the love of money. And here's one of the ways that he can do that, and that is by not putting a price on his ministry. Not putting a price on his ministry. I've been pastoring for about 34, almost 35 years. And I've never put a price on my ministry. Any churches that I was being looked at to be a pastor, 
they would tell me what they would supply for me and that's what I worked with. I didn't say, no, 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 my needs are much greater than that, you need to do this. And what I'd have to do is just supply where I was lacking. And that's why for many years, a good 30 years, I had, had two or three jobs. So that between all of them, our needs would be met. And also, being in small fellowships makes it difficult for a church to provide what a pastor would need. And the Lord has provided for us, so I'm not sharing any of this with you to say pay me more or anything like that. I'm sharing this with you because this is what the Word of God is teaching us here in this qualification. Yes, we are to provide for those who serve in the role of pastor, elder, teacher. If they are preaching the gospel, that they are certainly allowed to live by the gospel. 2 Corinthians talks about that. But an elder should never have his heart set on money. Never. That shouldn't be his focus. That shouldn't be his, his passion or his desire. His passion should be the Word of God. That's not to say that he doesn't have needs and needs have to be met. And, and it is up to the people to make sure that they meet them. So he tells us here in this qualification that it's very important that he is free from the love of money. Now I want you to go over in verse 4. And as we get into verse 4, and we also look at what Titus gives us in verse 6 of chapter 1, this may take us a little bit to work through, or we may speed right through it. But if you'll notice the next one, he says, He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? It's as if to say that his home is like a mini church. It's like a testing ground. It's a place of opportunity to see his leadership skills as he takes care of his home. And the very interesting about managing, where he talks about here that he manages his own household well. The word manage, proistomy, is the same word used in 1 Timothy 5, 17, which talks about let the elders who rule. So the word rule here is translated, or proistomy is translated, manages. And that gives us really an idea of what's going on here, because you know what? This isn't my church. This is God's church. And He has placed me here as a pastor elder to manage it. Now we understand that. That makes a little bit of sense. I mean... When my first crop was younger and we were involved in t-ball out here at San Mateo, and uh, I managed a baseball team while they were playing. And that meant I had the responsibility of the team. Now, I had coaches that helped me, and we did these things together, but the ultimate responsibility was there for me. And when people needed to talk to me from the park, guess who they came to? They didn't come to all the coaches. They came and talked to the manager. That makes sense. When you have a job and you, you manage people, when I was working for the school, I was uh, one who managed teachers and managed the school. And so I was involved in hiring people and letting people go. I was involved in a lot of things that were more than just administrative, but it was working with corporate and making decisions. And it was really a lot of responsibility. And those who are involved in those areas are in areas of responsibility. And it's no different in the church. There is a lot of responsibility at being a pastor elder, as we're learning, not just from the qualifications, but what we looked at when we saw what they do. But notice here, it says that 
He manages his own household well. This speaks of one who manages a godly family. A godly family. Now, he doesn't just wake up one day and his family's godly. How do you become godly? Well, the first thing that has to happen is you have to have a relationship with Christ, right? God has to save you. You have to be born again. And until you're born again, you're ungodly. You might not act ungodly, but scripturally speaking, you're walking according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now is at work in the sons of disobedience. You live your life according to Satan, whether you realize that or not. He has the whole world, the whole unbelieving world in his grip. And so as you look at an elder's home, you've got to keep that in mind, especially if he's got young kids. Because those young kids may not be saved yet. They may be too young to be saved. So his home is an essential consideration. Before he can lead in the church... He must demonstrate spiritual leadership within the context of his family. He must preside over them, manage them. He's the manager of the home. And that basically is affirming the consistent biblical teaching on male headship in the home. Men, we're to lead the home. Now, I understand that when the man is not there, when he has went to be with the Lord, or other reasons have caused him to leave the home, the woman is now also involved in that, unless God puts another man in her life. But we're seeing here that as God has normally designed it, it is male headship. Now, as I said earlier, that's difficult to come by when the world can't even define what male and female is. And as we understand, and many of you in here are, have been married much longer than I have, and you're much older than I am, and you have experienced a lot more than I have, but we would certainly agree that it is a shared responsibility between a husband and a wife. There are many tasks that the wife manages within the home, but the husband must be the leader. He must lead that home. And it says here that he must do it well. That's the Greek word kalos. It means good. It pertains to a positive moral quality with the implication of being favorably valued. It should be praiseworthy. When you look at his managerial skills as he leads his family... It should be praiseworthy. It should be something good, something to model after, something to imitate. In other words, he does it beautifully. His home is looked at as something lovely. It's appealing to the eye. And the idea is that an elder's leadership is inherently good. It manifests good to those who observe it. Now again, this is a qualification that's put on the pastor elder, but this is a qualification for all men. As I've said, that there are things here that apply to men, things that apply to women, things that apply to men and women. 
And the pastor elder is not the only one to manifest these qualifications, though he is to be a pattern and an example. And this is the kind of men that are to lead the church. And notice something else he tells us here at the end of verse 4. He must keep his children under control with all dignity. Keep his children under control with all dignity. This is referring to children that are still in the home, children that have already grown up, that have moved out of the home. Maybe now they have a family. It's not referring to that, but it's referring to those who are his offspring. There's really no specific reference to their gender or to their age. I have grown kids now, and they are still my kids. They will always be my kids, just as many of you do. But they are to have them under control. Hupotage is the word for control. It means to, to obey. It means to submit to orders or directives. It's really more of a military term, which gives us the idea of lining up under rank, under those who are in authority. And so his children are lined up under his authority. They are respectful. They are controlled. They are disciplined. Linsky says, ill-trained bad children reflect on any pastor, not merely because they are hurtful examples to the children of the members of the church, but still more because they show that the father is incompetent for his office. So again, all this ties together. You look at a pastor's home life as you're examining him to be a pastor of the fellowship. And that's the way it works with all those who serve in leadership. When you're looking at elders and you're looking at deacons, you have to look at their home life. They have to be tested. They have to be examined, not just in their abilities in the church, not just looking at an elder and seeing his abilities to teach and to lead, to feed the flock, but you've got to look at some other areas as well. And the only way you're going to be able to see these areas is you've got to go where they are. You've got to go to their home. And I'll tell you, the first hour or so, everybody's on their best behavior, but hour two or hour three, uh, that's when you begin to see what life is really like. And hopefully there's consistency. Amen? I'm not saying that they're perfect, but they're consistent. They're consistent at being holy and consistent at managing their families. Notice he says there, he has to do this with all dignity. That refers to behavior that is befitting. It's implying a measure of dignity that leads to respect. In fact, the RSV, it translates this verse, he must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. So the best way that he is to be tested is how he handles his children, not by how rich or successful or well-known he may be. But how does he handle his children? How does he handle his home? How does he lead his home? Because he says in verse 5, if he does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? It's impossible. Impossible. Well, if you'll notice verse 6, and we're going to pick up what he says in Titus in just a minute, where he talks about children who believe or who are faithful. But let's, before we get there, let's go ahead and stay within the text that we have in front of us and look at verse 6. 
And he tells us now, and this is uh, qualification number 14 if you're keeping count, he's not a new convert. You may have novice. It literally means newly planted. Alexander Strauss says, no matter how spiritual, zealous, knowledgeable, or talented a new convert may be, he is not spiritually mature. Maturity requires time and experience for which there is no substitute. And I agree 100,000% with that. I hope I'm not the same as I was years ago in my walk with Christ. I hope that I have grown and that I have matured in things of Scripture that I was immature in in times past. I have not arrived, and neither have you, and we still have a lot of work to do. And I'll be first to say, like Paul did, I am the chief of sinners. And especially like this morning as I'm reading through these qualifications again before I got here this morning, I'm saying, Lord, I feel like that I have fallen woefully short of many of these that I find here. But that's because the standard is divine. That's because God has put a standard there. And, you know, we tend to measure our lives next to another person. And it's easy to do that because we can always find someone who is less than us. Right? But you're not going to find that when you come to Scripture and you compare yourself to Scripture. Or you compare yourself to God. Like Matthew 5.48 says, You are therefore to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. There's the standard right there. He is the one who gave these qualifications. He is the one who laid out this standard. Even though a man may have a desire for ministry in this capacity, if he doesn't meet the standards that are there, he, he can't serve in that. Now, as I said last time, there's some qualifications here. If he violates them, he's out of the ministry. He never comes back. If you have a man that commits adultery, he's out. He doesn't come back and serve as a pastor. And it doesn't matter if someone comes along and, as they did with Jimmy Swaggart, and said, well, Jimmy Swaggart, he was caught with a prostitute. And uh, he had tears over it, and he cried over it, and somebody else came along and said that he had a demon, and they casted a demon out of him over the telephone, and now he's fit for ministry again, and now he's returned back to where he was. All we do when we do that is we lower the standard. In fact, we destroy the standard. Let's just say it that way. Not only do we lower it, but we just totally obliterate it. And that brings dishonor to God. It brings dishonor to God in the world. We're not holding Him high and showing that He is a holy and righteous God. But we're lowering it. And we're making God like everybody else. We're making God like man. And we're saying that there is no righteous man to be found with these qualifications if that's how we respond. And that's simply problematic. So an elder must be mature in his faith. And again, we just... If we just go by the term elder, that's what the term elder is illustrating. Maturity. And he also tells us here that he has to be one who is not newly planted so that he will not be conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Conceited is a word for pride. Puffed up. 
It means to be swollen with pride, extremely proud. Someone said one time, man's the only creature you can pat him on the back of the head. His head swells. So you've got to be careful how many compliments at one time you give to somebody. Because it can come across so much that it appeals more to his pride. Instead of him being humble, he becomes prideful. And we certainly don't need that, do we? So he can't be a new convert. You can't have a new believer serving as an elder. That's a contradiction. He's not mature. He doesn't understand what's at stake here and the responsibility that he has as a shepherd of the church. Well, if you'll notice verse 7, he gives us another qualification, and he says, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and snare of the devil. A good reputation. This is referring to one who has a good internal and external reputation or testimony. John Calvin says, it seems difficult to think that a godly man should have unbelievers who are most eager to tell lies about us as witnesses to his integrity. The apostle's meaning is that as far as external behavior is concerned, even unbelievers should be forced to acknowledge that he is a good man. And you probably have heard that too. You've been around some unbelievers and you get on the subject of a church and get on the subject of a pastor... And everybody agrees he's a good man. Even the unbelievers standing there knows, yes, that's a good man right there. I see that man often. I've seen him in the grocery store. He's always polite. He's always talking to me. Or I live next door to him for X number of years, and he's been a good neighbor. Now I want you to take your Bible and turn over to Titus chapter 1, and let's pick up what's left here in these qualifications that we find in the book of Titus. As I said... There are many of these that have overlapped. And now we're going to find some that are in addition to what we find in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Titus 1.6 It says, If a man is above reproach, we've already looked at that, the husband of one wife, we already looked at that, that's a one-woman man, and here we go again, having children who believe. That's how the NAS translates it. Some translate it, having faithful children. So we need to deal with which is the best translation. Actually, what we're dealing with is, is this in the active voice or the passive voice, because there's differing of opinion. But aside from the differing of opinion on what voice it's in in the Greek, which gives us the understanding of what it's meaning here, we have some other things that we can, we can reference that will help us also interpret this. We would all agree, as we've said already from 1 Timothy 3, that an elder is to have his home in order. A man who cannot spiritually and morally lead his own family is not qualified to lead an entire congregation. That has been extremely clear. But as you look at this... It's technopista in Greek. It means children who believe or faithful children. And again, it's depending on how it's translated. Again, the difference here or the disagreement here concerns the adjective, which is the word pistis, and whether it should be rendered believing or faithful. And in the end, the bottom line is this, is the requirement of Titus 1.6, 
that the children possess saving faith, that is believing, or that they are obedient to their father, that is faithful. And as I said, the word translated believing, pistis, that's in the active sense, it would mean believing, trusting. But in the passive sense, it would mean faithful or trustworthy. And some believe it's used in the active sense, referring to believing children, while others believe it's used in the passive, referring to faithful children. And you read both arguments, and both have good arguments. But I tend to lead toward the passive, and I want to tell you why. First of all, I want to quote John Gill. John Gill says, he's... He says, by faithful children cannot be meant converted ones or true believers in Christ. And here's why he would say this. For it is not in the power of men to make their children such. And their not being so can never be an objection to their being elders if otherwise qualified. At most... The phrase can only intend that they should be brought up in the faith, in the principles, doctrines, and ways of Christianity, or in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And of course, those who reject that idea and translate it in the active as believing children say, also, only God can lead a person to salvation. Now, that's what we believe. We believe in a sovereign salvation. We believe that God is the one who saves. God is the one who opens the heart as he did with Lydia there in Acts chapter 16. It says the Lord opened up her heart to give heed to the things spoken of by the Apostle Paul. Or we see in John chapter 6 that no man can come to, to God unless God draws him first. Or we see like in Ephesians chapter 2 where it says that you're dead in trespasses and sins, but verse, verse 5 says, but God made you alive. So we believe in a sovereign salvation. We believe that God is the one who opens up the heart. God is the one who transforms. God is the one who causes the new birth. And so this is where I would come from with that, with that understanding over believing children. Only God can lead a person to salvation. Godly parents cannot force their children into the faith. I can train my kids. You can train your kids. You can share the gospel with them every single day and every moment of the day. You can read the gospel to them. You can read the Bible to them. You can take them to church. You can have them to hear the gospel over and over. But you can't save them. Right? You can't save them. I can't save them. God is the one who has to save them. God is the one who has to open up their heart. George Knight says, An overseer, both here and in 1 Timothy 3, is evaluated on the basis of his control of his children and their conduct, not their salvation. Good point. Alexander Strauss says, What is at stake is the children's behavior, not their e eternal state. To say this passage means believing Christian children places an impossible standard upon a father. Salvation is a supernatural act of God. God, not good parents, although they are used of God, ultimately brings salvation. It goes on to say, while the characterization of a prospective elder's children as faithful does not mean they must be believers, it implies that they must be responsible and faithful family members. 
This requirement is similar to that of 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5, where an elder's children are expected to be submissive and under his control. Here, though, the qualification is stated in a more positive way. The elder must have children who are loyal and dutiful, good citizens, or we might say today, responsible children. And he uses that same word for children that he used in 1 Timothy 3. It's the Greek word technon. It refers to a child, whether it's a male or a female. It doesn't give us their gender, and it doesn't give us their age. It's obvious he's referring to children who are still under the authority of their parents. When my older kids grew up and they left the home, a couple of them started families, I had no more say. Now, I can share things with them, right? Just as our parents would share stuff with us, but we're at a different place in our life now. We're not sitting there under their authority. But yet we should honor them. We should respect them. And so, as we look at this, we ask the question, is he referring to children who believe? Or is he referring to faithful children? And I'm submitting to you, I take it in the passive, as faithful children, faithful children. Because he says, even as he goes on here, they're not accused of dissipation or rebellion. And that right there explains what faithful means. You're not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Well, notice verse 7 where we pick up another one. The overseer must be a pub reproach as God's steward, and he must not be self-willed. That means self-pleasing. That means that he is obstinate in one's own opinion. He's arrogant. He refuses to listen to others. He has an arrogant self-interest that asserts its own will with other, utter disregard for how others might be affected. He thinks about others. He is constantly concerned about his testimony to others, his reputation to others. He doesn't want to do anything to undermine the gospel. Again, Alexander Strauss says he is stubborn, arrogant, and inconsiderate of others' opinions, feelings, and desires. A self-willed man is headstrong, independent, self-assertive, and gracious toward those who are of a different opinion. A self-willed person is not a team player, which, is, which in the shared leadership of eldership will cause much contention and division. Furthermore, a self-willed man will scatter the sheep because he is unyielding, overbearing, and blind to others' feelings and opinions. Such a man must not be permitted to be an elder. 2 Peter 2.10 refers to false teachers as those who are self-willed. So if he's a self-willed individual, if he's arrogant, stubborn, inconsiderate of others' feelings, then he's no different than a false teacher. Well, he doesn't stop there. Number 18, if you're keeping count, says that he is not quick-tempered. Not quick-tempered. It doesn't refer to occasional outbursts, but it's referring to a propensity to anger. He's angry all the time. 
This is one who is easily flaring up in anger, not having his temper under control. We're told in Proverbs 14, 17, a quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. Proverbs 29, 22 says, an angry man stirs up strife, and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. See, just anger in general is a bad thing. Told in Ephesians chapter 4 to be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun come down on your anger. Which means you need to resolve conflicts before you go to sleep. Well, number 19. The next one in verse 7 is he's not fond of sordid gain. Uh, that's, that was translated in 1 Timothy 3.3, not greedy for money, not being a lover of money. And actually, in 1 Timothy 3, it doesn't appear in some of the better manuscripts. We do find it here. The next one, number 20, would be loving what is good. And uh, that appears only here in the New Testament. And it describes someone who not only loves good things, but likes to do them as well. In other words, it denotes devotion to all that is best, or literally having a strong affection for that which is instrictably, I can't even say the word, instrictably good. There, I got it. Probably can't say it again. Moulton and Milligan, they cite a late 2nd century papyrus document that rendered the word a lover of virtue. And even the authorized version translates it a lover of good men, while the New American Standard translates it, loving what is good. You see, these are, as I said, qualifications not just for the pastor elder, but for everyone. And if everyone is maintaining this, then as you begin to look at men for ministry, it's easy to see who should be in the role of leadership. Well, notice number 21, he says he's sensible. That was translated sober-minded in the authorized. It means to be of a sound mind. It refers to discipline or self-control. It's a word that describes a person who is sober-minded or cool-headed, one who is well-balanced, one who has a properly regulated mind. He's discreet. He's prudent. Next, just means righteous. It's a state of being right or having right conduct. It denotes that which is proper, that which is right, that which is fitting. In other words, an elder is upright in his dealings with men. His conduct in relation to others conforms to what is right. He has integrity. He's honest. Number 23, he is devout. That's translated holy in the authorized. It refers to being pure, unpolluted, free from the stain of sin. It speaks of the individual who keeps himself free from that which stains him in the eyes of God. And if you remember Paul saying this in 1 Thessalonians 2.10, he says, You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. There is a behavior about us that must be devout. It must be upright. It must be blameless. This should not only be on display before an unbelieving world, but also toward believers. And then, of course, we find the next one is that he is self-controlled. Self-controlled. And that basically means 
He has a self-mastery. He has control over his self. This is a type of a self-mastery which controls all the passionate impulses. It keeps the will loyal to the will of God. This is found in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23. He is one who, again, has everything under control. We find examples of this in Scripture, but we also find the opposite. It's unfortunate that King David many times is known for his lack of control rather than having control. And in an area and a time when he needed to be in control was the time when he decided not to go out to battle. And he's hanging out on the roof of his palace and the king's roof was much higher than everyone else's so he would look down on the roofs of other houses. And we're told in 2 Samuel chapter 11 that as he is there on the roof of his housetop, he looks down and he sees a woman bathing. Now he should have had the same response Joseph had when Potiphar's wife was making advances toward him. What did he do? He ran. He got out of there. He says, there's no way I'm going to stay there alone with her. I can't do this sin against God. And he got out. Well, David didn't get out. If you want to follow along, I'm just going to read the first four verses of 2 Samuel 11. It says, Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. Or Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? That should have been enough right there to stop him. This is a married woman. But the first thing that should have stopped him is what the law said in the Old Testament, that he was not to look on a, a naked woman. A naked woman that wasn't his wife. Let's qualify that. Verse 4, David sent messengers anyway, and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her, and when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. So he gave in to his temptation, he gave in to his lust, even after he found out that this woman was married. He did not exercise self control, self-restraint. Again, Alexander Strauss says, to qualify as an overseer, a man must be characterized by self-discipline, self-restraint, and self-control in every aspect of life, particularly over physical desires. Solomon warns against undisciplined man's vulnerability in Proverbs 25, 28, when he says, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Strauss continues to say, during Solomon's time, walls were a strategic part of a city's defense system. A strong and secure city fortified its walls. So a man's stability can be likened to such fortifications. Without stability and self-control, a person is exposed to attack 
and becomes easy prey for an enemy. An undisciplined man has little resistance to sexual lust, provocation, anger, slothfulness, a critical spirit, or other desires that seek to control him. He is easy prey to sinful desires and the devil. Self-discipline is an essential part of the Christian life. Leaders who lack discipline frustrate their fellow leaders as well as those they lead. Not only are they poor examples, but they cannot accomplish what needs to be done. Consequently, the flocks they shepherd are poorly managed and cared for. You know, truthfully speaking, you could spend hours on each of these qualifications and not exhaust the subject, but we're getting the idea, right? And there is actually one more that we find, and it's in verse 9. And he says here, Holding, the fast, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Holding fast the faithful word. Holding fast means he cleaves to it. He holds on to it. Or as Kenneth Wee says, he holds firmly to it. And the word faithful, here we're seeing that word again, same word, pistis, translated believing or faithful. Here it's translated faithful. And here it is used as faithful, trustworthy, reliable. God's Word is faithful. God's Word is trustworthy. God's Word is reliable. You can trust it. You can live your life every day according to it. You can bank your life on it. When it says something, it will happen. When God promises something in His Word, His Word is true because His character is at stake. His Word is synonymous with His person. Psalm 119 verse 86 says, All your commandments are faithful. All of them are faithful. Psalm 12, 6, The words of the Lord are pure words. No wonder David says in Psalm 119.50, This is my comfort in my, in my affliction, that your word has revived me, because it's a faithful word. This is the faithful word that the elder has been taught. So when we go back to apt to teach and being skilled in teaching and being teachable, he has been taught that brought him to that place of maturity, that brought him to that place of being a skillful handler of the Scripture. He had to be taught by another faithful man or men. So the word taught, that's didache, it refers to teaching. And so an elder clings firmly to the faithful, trustworthy, reliable word that he's been taught. He doesn't stray to the left or the right. But as Proverbs 4.23 says... He keeps watch over his heart with all diligence. All diligence. Now that's how they're qualified. Now go back to 1 Peter 5. And let's finish verse 1. What brought us into this subject of elders and church leadership is what he says here. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. That's what brought us here. God is asking the question, what are elders? Who are they? What do they do? Well, we're going to find out what they do next time 
in context of what we find here as we begin verse 2 next time, but let's just finish out verse 1 because Peter is identifying with his readers. He says here, I'm exhorting elders, I'm coming alongside you as your fellow elder. I'm an elder too, he says. But not only that, he says also a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. So he is a fellow elder, sum presbyteros, or sum presbyteros, it's more like it, only occurs here. And basically he's putting himself on the same level. Hybert says Peter's elaborate self-identification adds to the persuasiveness of the appeal. Aside from his name, in chapter 1, the writer's identity appears more forcefully here than anywhere else in the epistle. And modestly, Peter did not assert his apostolic identity. He just said he was a fellow elder. But he also said he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. A witness. That's a martyr. We get martyr. And he did become a martyr. It's not a spectator. It's one who testifies to something. That's where we get the word testimony from. And so, two possible meanings that may come by that word, martyrs. It may mean either an eyewitness or more generally one who bears testimony to what he accepts as true. I believe right here he is an eyewitness and we can prove that. Peter gave testimony concerning the sufferings of Christ. Listen to what he said in Acts 5.30 and following. Peter said, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging Him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. He says we are witnesses. He was an eyewitness of Christ's sufferings. We know according to John 18.1, He was in the garden when Jesus was arrested. We also know according to John 18.10, that He cut off the right ear of one of the officers who was arresting Jesus. We also know according to John 18.15, He was later in the courtyard while the trial of Jesus was going on. So He was an eyewitness an eyewitness of Christ's sufferings. And according to Luke 24, 18, everyone knew about the trial and the crucifixion. But not everybody was there to witness it. But Peter was. And so was John. You remember that after they came and arrested Jesus in the garden, everyone fled. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And that's exactly what happened. That was a prophecy from the Old Testament. So he was an eyewitness. And so that identifies with their suffering. Because what, the, what is this book about? It's about suffering, right? But notice how he ends it also. He says that he is also a partaker of the glory to be revealed. And he could have been alluding to the Mount Transfiguration that we find in Matthew 17 when Jesus was transfigured before them. He saw the glory of Christ as He's transfigured 
right before his eyes. And you remember Peter, Peter always spoke up. I believe Peter had a foot-shaped mouth. He said some of the things that, <laughs> let's don't fault him on everything because we would probably have done the same thing. But sometimes he rebuked Christ and told Christ he wasn't going to the cross and Jesus had to rebuke him and telling him that what he is saying is of Satan, not of God. Other times he said things like in Matthew 16 when he identified Jesus as the Son of the living God. And Jesus had to say, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. So sometimes he's saying the right things and sometimes he's not. And guess what? We do the same thing. But we find him at the trial. He's out there warming his hands at the fire and somebody says, you're one of them. Your speech gives you away. I like that phrase, by the way. I think that that's a good uh, term or a good phrase for believers. Our speech should give us away. How we talk should identify that we belong to the Savior. Amen? He says here he is a partaker. He is in fellowship with this glory that is to be revealed. And it's a future glory. And it's a future glory that not only he will enjoy, that will be revealed, but every believer will enjoy. It's pointing here to the unveiling that he eagerly was anticipating. It's not the glories that we find when we enter at death, but it's the unveiling of Christ's glories when he returns to the earth. And boy, what a sight that's going to be. I mean, we could think about just the, just the concept of the fact that when we die, we're going to enter into His glory, and that's going to be a sight unimaginable, right? But think about when Christ returns, and He lights up the sky with His glory. Amazing stuff here. So, verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God. People that are suffering whether they're suffering persecution or suffering from other things, or whether they're not suffering, they need to be shepherded by God's shepherds. How does God refer to the church? He refers to the church as sheep. And we're going to talk about how important those terms are and why God chose that term to identify His people. But we're going to have to look at that next time. But we have to say that what we've looked at up to this point, this is Christ's church. He mediates His rule through godly men called elders. Elders are pastors, they're overseers, they're shepherds. They manage the church, they care for the church, they're guardians of the church. And Peter's emphasis here on their role is that they need to shepherd the suffering church that is among them. They have to come alongside. They need to comfort. They need to encourage. They need to exhort. 
So the biblical pattern that we've just looked at for four weeks now, the biblical pattern of church leadership is elders and deacons. Elders are pastors, overseers, shepherds. Those terms are used interchangeably, even though that we only use the one noun that's found in Ephesians 4.11 as pastor. But the rest of the time, the word is used as a verb. tells us what they do. They feed the flock of God. And they feed the flock the word of God. This is also the biblical pattern of church government because they have been given that role and that responsibility to take care of the church. And you need to pray for them. You need to pray for our church that God would raise up more elders, additional elders, because that's God's pattern. And I, as I told you last week, it's pretty strange that we find a plurality of deacons in a church, meaning more than one. <laughs> but we don't find a plurality of pastors. And there's more information on pastor elders than there are deacons. You only have in 1 Timothy 3, 8-13, you have information there on deacons, possibly Acts 6. We certainly can draw things from there that will help us understand the role of deacon because the word diakonos, its root word means to serve tables, and that's what was going on in Acts chapter 6. The apostle says we can't leave the word of God in prayer to serve tables, so you need to choose out among you seven men. Gives them the qualifications. These people come back, they choose seven Greek men because it was the Greek-speaking Jews that were being neglected. And they bring them to the apostles. The apostles examine them, and then they appoint them to the task. Same thing we see today. Elders are the ones responsible for that. Jesus is the head of His church. He has designed for us how His church is to function. As we close, I want to give you this quote by Spurgeon, very apt to our day. He says, A time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. And I think the clowns have arrived. When you say... It's not our desire, but it can happen, and hopefully it will never happen here. And to prevent that, we have to continue to be committed to the Word of God, to teach it and live what it says. And this is true when it comes to what the Bible says about the church. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the Savior of the church. And we thank Him for that, don't we? He is in the business of saving. Praise God. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word this morning, and we thank You for the opportunity to look at it. I know that we covered a lot of information uh, these fat plat past four weeks, but it's Your Word. And we've taken the time necessary to look into this as we continue to look at what Peter gives us here in 1 Peter 5. We pray, Heavenly Father, that You will just do your work in each of us, that we will surrender ourselves to that great work. And Lord, we pray also for those that you're saving, those that you're calling to yourself. Lord, we pray for our faithfulness that we'll be faithful to share the gospel throughout the week. That's the way that you call the elect to yourself. 
We thank you and we praise you. In your precious name we pray. Amen.